Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 305th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented and enigmatic figures in Hollywood, a child actor turned adult star turned showbiz washout who is now making one of the great comebacks in recent memory, a man who doesn't grant many interviews of any length, let alone this length, and who may never have opened up to a journalist about his roller coaster life and career as much as he does in this sit-down, Shia LaBeouf. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 33-year-old and I discussed how he wound up in the business at the age of 11 and soon thereafter as the star of the Disney Channel's Even Stevens, which brought him a daytime Emmy in 2003. What brought him to the attention of Steven Spielberg, who subsequently produced the Transformers trilogy and directed Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the films through which he became an international star? What caused him to become a totally committed actor, but also a deeply troubled person during the period encompassing 2012's Lawless, 2013's Nymphomaniac, 2014's Fury, 2015's Man Down, 2016's American Honey, and 2017's Borg vs. McEnroe, right into the 2017 production of Tyler Nilsson and Michael Schwartz's The Peanut Butter Falcon, during which he hit rock bottom, and how he employed his resulting stint in court-ordered rehab to work through his own past in the form of a screenplay that became Alma Harrell's Honey Boy, a film about his extremely complicated relationship with his father, who he plays in the film. Honey Boy premiered at Sundance back in January and has blown away critics and audiences ever since, en route to a November 8th release by Amazon. And The Peanut Butter Falcon, which cost $6.2 million, premiered and won the Audience Award at South by Southwest in March, and since Roadside Attractions released it in theaters back on August 23rd, it has grossed $20 million in the U.S. to become the top platform release of the year so far. In other words, Shia LaBeouf is once again at the center of a storm. But, for the first time in years, it's a good one. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Shai, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Good to have you. Always begin with just a few basics on this podcast. If you can share with folks, where were you born and raised, and what was the profession of your parents? Downtown Los Angeles. My mother was a fabric salesman. My father was a (laughs) clown, drug-dealing clown. Well, and, and obviously people uh, can can watch Honey Boy to get a more nuanced um, look into into what he did. But I guess one thing that sort of predates the period that is really covered in, in Honey Boy is that, you know, the very start of performing for you was at a very young age in a sense, right? I mean, you sort of went to work with your dad. Yeah. What was, what was some of the stuff you would, like, growing up in this city, I guess, Echo Echo Park mm-hmm. neighborhood. Was there something with, like, hot dogs and maybe... Yeah, could... so my dad, we, he had stolen a hotel cart from the Radisson, and he painted it uh, to look like a like uh, circus colors, and he put um, a boiler in it, and we made hot dogs, and he would freeze. There was an industrial freezer at this donut store in Echo Park, Glendale Boulevard, and um, he'd freeze these big blocks of ice and take the shopping cart, go pick that up, bring it back to the house and put this big block of ice in the uh, hotel cart. And he would shave ice and put like, he had a bunch of syrups and we'd sell snow cones and hot dogs. And the family would dress up like clowns in the park and uh, sell 
hot dogs and snow cones, and he painted snow cone family circus on the side of the hotel cart, and we would, that's how we paid rent. Was that, I mean, how old were you at that time? Well, uh, three. Do you remember it being kind of an adventure? Was it fun? Or Yeah. yeah? I learned to swim in that little lake right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was when, that was like when, I mean, that's when they would be the most connected. Yeah. My mother and him. You can't really uh, have a bunch of fighting clowns selling anything. <laughs> so it was like a time where we would all be very jovial and right. performative, but real. Yeah. And, and yeah, that felt like solace. So I tried my best to do my research before here. It seems like it, maybe you were about five when they split up. Mm-hmm. And around that time, it's, it, it seems like that's when you went to a performing arts school for the first time, sort of a magnet school. Was that because you'd already shown sort of an aptitude for, like, you know, this is a guy who, who's got some performing abilities, or was that just, you know, coincidental that that ended up being the case? Well, the true story is uh, uh, we had to leave Echo Park because rent control came in. I think we were about six years old, six or seven, and, and we moved to the valley, a place called Tahunga, where my dad had friends, and he wound up getting a job at this bar called The Sundowner, where his friends worked. And so we moved there because he had this job waiting for him, and my mom could still get into town. She also liked Tahunga because of the air. Mm-hmm. My mom's a hippie. <laughs> and um, Tahunga's where they used to send kids who had asthma, yep. so the air is really beautiful mm-hmm. over there. And so I went there and was going to a school called Pinewood and uh, had gotten kicked out of that school and couldn't go to that school anymore. And then they had made me take an aptitude test because I think they thought I was— either had ADHD or something of the sort. Mm -hmm. And I took an aptitude test, and I happened to be sitting next to a person who was qualified to be in a magnet program, Mm -hmm. and I cheated off their test completely. (laughs) And then I was also qualified to be in a magnet program. (laughs) And so I got sent to a school in downtown L.A. when we were in the Valley called 32nd Street, Uh which was part of USC, but the public school arm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a magnet program. And uh, I would get bussed from Tahunga to downtown every day till about maybe 11 at this point. And then I get kicked out of that school, sent back to Tahunga, where there was a juvenile detention school, mm-hmm. and went there and got my grades up and decided Hollywood might be the move because mm-hmm. I wasn't doing well in school. <laughs> well, meanwhile, I guess right in that same time period, you did something that I don't know too many other 10-year-olds have done, which is you became a stand-up comedian. Literally, not, you know, hey, you know, we were having friends over. Can you tell a few jokes? You were going to clubs? Well, my dad had relationships with some of the comics at the Ice House Mm -hmm. in Pasadena. Yeah, so part of the trade was, hey, help get my kid up on stage. (laughs) And there was a window before they started serving drinks where guys would like, comics would get there early and sort of work routines for other comics. So there was like an open mic, I guess, from like 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Six is when they would start serving drinks. So there was like a small window of 10 minutes where I could get up. And so every time my dad would go down there, he'd get there a little bit early. He would come with all his friends, and his friends would flood the place out and laugh very loud. And I would get up and do like old Lenny Bruce routines that I would listen to in my dad's Corvette. And they had never heard Lenny Bruce. and. Right. and this stuff coming from like a 10 year old with a bowl cut was pretty wild. <laughs> pretty foul, right? You were really foul. Yeah. yeah. And like Red Skelton routines right. <laughs> and uh, Richard Pryor. And I would memorize all these routines and then spit them back to my dad's friends who, you know, and I would do this in our living room mm-hmm. also when he would bring friends over. 
which was all the time, there was always like dudes in my house. <laughs> and so uh, uh, I would perform for them all the time. So it just felt like an extension. The stage felt like an extension of my living room mm -hmm. and felt pretty free up there. And then one night uh, while we were doing this, I guess the uh, Jay Leno was to be performing that night. Mm -hmm. And one of his, I guess, a talent scout or an assistant or something of the sort from The Tonight Show happened to be in the room that night watching us grind and watching my dad's friends howl. <laughs> and I kind of had command of the room because it was like dealing with relatives. Mm -hmm. And they said, hey, you're pretty good with, with crowds. Come warm up the Tonight Show audience before our warm-up DJ. They had like a DJ yeah, comic. Yeah. And so I, I started going over the Tonight Show and warming up the crowd before he would start his warm-up set. This was set. a regular thing. Yeah. Wow. And had done this six or seven times mm -hmm. before the talent arm of The mm -hmm. Tonight Show asked me to start doing skits. Mm -hmm. And I did two or three skits mm -hmm. on The Tonight Show. And that was kind of my entrance into being able to get into SAG mm -hmm. because this stuff had aired. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's one thing led to another from the Ice House into The Tonight Show. Amazing. Warm yeah. up into these skits into, like, calling up an agent. Yeah. Well, that is a incredible story, too, because, I mean, you really had – I mean, I, I think you're part – Part Jewish, right? So you'll probably know the the word chutzpah. I mean, it took some chutzpah to do what you did now. Like I guess a year later, you're eleven or something, and you're not gonna wait around for a talent scout to get you an agent or something, right? How did that come about? Well, on the Tonight Show, there was a kid who came by. He was the only like kid I had seen on the show. He was on this show called Doctor Quinn Medicine yeah, Woman, and yeah. he was like the first guest one night. I think Ray Liotta was the second mm -hmm. guest, but. None of that mattered to me. It was just the fact that I saw a kid who was around my age on the Tonight Show stage as a guest. Mm -hmm. And I had big visions of like sitting in that chair and not being in the sketches or the warm-up side, but actually sitting in the chair. Mm -hmm. And I had seen him backstage and asked him, like, you know, what's your deal? What's your life like? And he told me that he used to surf in Malibu mm -hmm. at this place called Point Dune. Mm -hmm. There was also a private beach that he mentioned, but I remember him saying Point Dune, asked my dad if he could take me down there. My dad had a relationship to that beach and... His parents uh, spent a lot of time in Venice, so he's like, yeah, I had never asked him to go surfing before. So we wound up going down there. He's like, look, we don't have a surfboard. I said, no, but I have this friend who surfs down there. And uh, I remember getting in contact with this guy and saying, the, the kid who was on Dr. Quill Medicine Woman, only knew, only really hung out with him these two times, mm -hmm. one at the Tonight Show and this one time at the beach. And when we went to the beach, I saw he had, like, brand-new Doyle surfboards, <laughs> which were the expensive, yeah. like, foam boards, yeah, yeah, yeah. which were perfect for a beginner because yeah. they float. And he had like all the gear. He had all this gear and his his, um, his mom lived like across the street from Point Dune, like in a really nice area. And uh, I was really uh, attracted to that. The uh, material. The material yeah. wealth, yeah. yeah. We were in the valley at this point, in like Deep Valley. Yeah. And so I, you know, he was supporting his whole family. And I thought, yeah, well, this is the route. There's no other route for me. I'm not going to school. I'm not doing well in school. Right, right. And there's no like, like, um, chunk of money sitting there for me to go start a business or mm -hmm. anything like that so I started like my scheming fingers popped on <laughs> and I started just thinking like oh yeah this is the route right and asked him how he did it he said he got an agent I asked him if I could have his agent's number and he said no <laughs> and I Doesn't thought I thought competition yeah. yeah I thought that's really wild you know <laughs> like you'll let me ride your surfboard but somehow this <laughs> agent thing and I already had like two credits on the tonight show so I thought well why not right and he said, uh, well, you know, my route was I started as a model. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, I don't know how in the fuck that's going to happen. <laughs> but, uh, okay, that's the way that this goes on. Right. So I went home that night and started calling up modeling agents from the Yellow Pages. 
as who? As a, uh, as a my own manager. <laughs> so like had a deeper voice and like right. an English accent, which was garbage then as it is now. But you <laughs> but was trying, you know, and and so they knew it was garbage. Right. But they also could sense the chutzpah. Right. And so everybody that I would call was sort of into it, but then they would want to talk to my mother, and my mother didn't want to get on the phone. Right. Because my mother wasn't like a huge supporter of this thing. My mother wanted me to like stay in school and become a doctor, like every Jewish mother from New York. <laughs> exactly. And my dad was in the VA hospital at this point. Because uh, he'd been a he'd served in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, and 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 at this point he's a just full blown junkie. Yeah. My mother kicked him out, and he yeah. went to go like uh, dry out. Mm-hmm. And he went to the VA hospital, so he's not in the house, and I'm seeing him on weekends. And I have this dream, and I'm calling these agents, and in the B's of the agents list, there was this Beverly Hecht agency, mm-hmm. and I called, and it happened to be a, a the woman who owned the agency was less an agent than she was a, like a New York barber. So she and me spoke the same kind of language, and she liked my hustle. And she said, uh, come in here, mm-hmm. you know, come meet me. So later in the week, my cousin Elizabeth and her dude took me in there, and I met her, and she gave me a Burger King commercial, and I read it. I think it was kind of a big deal that already was like SAG eligible but didn't pay my way in yet. Right. So right. she paid my way into SAG. Wow. I didn't have any money for headshots, so she paid for my headshots. She let me stay at her house on her couch with her grandson. And, like, I spent the summer with Teresa mm-hmm. going on auditions, just going on auditions nonstop, and was getting good feedback but didn't have a work permit. So when that summer ended, I went back to Tahunga, got my grades up at Mount Gleason, mm-hmm. and got a work permit, then went back to Teresa's the next summer, and that's when my career really started to happen. And that period in between, it was it was sort of student film parts, right, where Correct. you're getting, getting some yeah. credits. because you didn't need to have a work permit or yeah. be SAG eligible to do these, like, student films, and I had been taking tap dance lessons at uh, Cal State Northridge. My mother always had me in these programs, so uh, a bunch of arts programs, you know, like daycare center stuff. So I was doing like a tap dance class there, and there was a they were making a tap dance movie, and that was like a a window into a bunch of student films. Yeah. So things, as you say, got going. I mean, there were, I think, some episodes of ER and the X-Files and all kinds of stuff, but it it seems like the big moment of that era would be getting even stevens for the disney channel they have said people associated with that show that they looked at 2600 boys Mm -hmm. you get the part do you remember that feeling like a a huge deal were you nervous going in did you was it a exciting thing coming out of getting the part just what was that whole thing like yeah i was just basically mad dogging all the kids that came in so i would (laughs) stay at the audition for hours and hours like If I had one audition, I'd be there like four hours earlier and would look at all, watch all the kids go in. This is when I met Ben yeah. Foster also. Okay. Was in this audition okay. room. He wound up auditioning for the role of the bigger brother and mm-hmm. didn't get it, but he was already on fast forward, mm-hmm. so it didn't make any sense. And he was just auditioning also, mm-hmm. getting ready to go to school. Mm-hmm. And this is when I met him and got very close mm-hmm. to him because I met him in like my first audition. Wow. But yeah, and he's the one who sort of put me on to, you know, uh, everyone's after the same plate. This is super competitive. Mm-hmm. And then I started coming to these auditions. The auditions went on for like, it felt like months. Really? Yeah, it wasn't like just one or two. It was like 10. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because I had been doing initially the show's setup was it was the show for a kid stand-up comic. Mm-hmm. That's what the show was basically about. It was called Spivey's Kid Brother, mm-hmm. and it was a show about a kid stand-up comic. Mm-hmm. Now, I had already had all these stand-up routines memorized. Yeah. Hence why it worked out for me. Right. But I would go in and spit my same routines I had been doing at the Ice House and then would do the audition. You know, had like a lot of the mannerisms and stuff. Yeah. But yeah. Well, so that that was a show that ran from 2000 to 2003. And 
you started to, I think that's probably your largest audience up to that point. People are starting to know about your work. You win the Daytime Emmy in 2003. And I guess that's also the period that is sort of addressed in under different names in Honey Boy because mm-hmm. you, I for the same reasons, I think, in order to be closer to the set, move out from your mom, move in with your dad to a motel, mm-hmm. and just that's that's the that period of three years. Yeah. One of the things about Honey Boy that's amazing is that it seems like such an even-handed, it's not sort of some people can use a movie and, and take out their feelings one way on, uh, you could have made uh, your dad one-dimensional, you could have been a, a perfect kid, and, and that would have been one thing. But you show, I think, that he was a flawed person, but he was also in some ways a valuable asset to you at that time when you're figuring yourself out. And I just wonder how much of what we see in the film is actually, in that sense, is actually what was going on, where you sort of, it was like a dependent, it was, I mean, legally it's a dependent relationship, but it was also, you know, you kind of needed each other, right? Everything that's in the film happened. Yeah. The, the, it's, it's what I didn't put in the film. Mm-hmm. There's things that happened that aren't in the film. But everything that wound up in the film was what was going on. So you talked about in another interview that there was, I think, also maybe around that time, even before that time, a movie called The Christmas Path. Mm-hmm. Can you share? I mean, because this to me was an example of where you're saying, even if you may have had your your frustrations with your dad, there was literally having him there could be a valuable trigger to you yes. acting, right? Yeah, so I, I uh, f- and for most actors, if you ask young actors, mm-hmm. this changes later in life where laughing becomes the thing you get scared of. But for a young kid, 10, 11 years old, 12 years old, walking onto a set and on the, on the call sheet, you're supposed to cry that day. This is very scary stuff. And so I didn't know how to go about doing that. I didn't really have any tools, never had gone to class, didn't really, wasn't connected to the material, and didn't know how I was going to pull it off. But I knew that every time, when my dad was in the VA hospital, every time my father would call, like clockwork, every time I would hear his voice, I'd break, every single time. And then we would, like, I'd cry my way into something else, mm-hmm. and, and then we'd be good again. But mm-hmm. there was a, the initial, like, blast of hearing my father's voice would send me into yeah. hysterics. Why do you think that was? I just missed him terribly. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, I've always been emotionally connected to my father in a different way than I am with my mother. My mother is like my safety net. Mm-hmm. My father is an antagonizer. Mm-hmm. It's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I uh, didn't know how, quite how we were going to pull this off. Dee Wallace Stone is there, a really sweet woman. Mm-hmm. I think she sort of put it to me, like, what moves you that way? And I said, well, my dad. Mm-hmm. And she and my, we didn't have the balls or the... The, to be able to say, hey, it needs to be like this. Mm-hmm. You're on a film set, you're quite like, it's a scary thing when you, when you first get there. It just feels so professional mm-hmm. and so bureaucratic <laughs> and such a factory right. that you really don't know where to be. You're really focused on like hitting marks and yeah. all the dumb shit. Yeah. And so I was that guy, and I think this is even before even Stevens. Yeah. And Dee is like, has a little bit more wiggle room. She's been in it for a while. She says, well, why don't you just put your dad by the camera? And... Um, Sure enough, my dad went and stood by the camera, and we shoot the scene, and and she whispers to me, like, right before we're about to go look up at him. And I look up at my dad, and my dad is on the on the other side of the camera, like, waving at mm-hmm. me like a cute dad. <laughs> and uh, and it broke me, mm-hmm. and we filmed, and his scene went really wild. And, and um, 
had gotten a lot of like kudos for mm-hmm. it. And that kudos became, I became addicted to that kudos. Mm-hmm. And it kind of fueled, you know, my way of working for a long time. The sense that just you pining were... your own pain yeah. and like holding on to it yeah. and not really ever dealing with it right. or questioning it, but just keeping it in a little bottle that you can pop the top on whenever it's needed, when well, the switch needs to be flipped. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I wonder if uh, you say that pretty much everything in Honey Boy really happened. And one of the most powerful moments, I think, is the scene where they sh- you short, sort of show you've, in a way, fantasizing about having a relationship with a father like one that you had done a scene with, with your own father. Was there sort of that sense that even though it was getting the job done, you 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 already knew that it could and maybe should be a little different, should be better, the relationship? No, I, I didn't, wasn't looking to change what I had, no. I was looking to make money. Yeah. My shit was so caveman. I wasn't in this existential place of uh, trying to play Tetris with my life. Still, I'm not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, I yeah. didn't have, like, the, the... I couldn't create the distance to be able to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. I was in it. So, yeah. in a very simple way, to me, having money meant having a family. Mm-hmm. The more money I had, the more I could have my family around. Mm-hmm. That's just how I equated it. Mm-hmm. My dad wasn't around for a lot of my life because he was chasing cash. Mm-hmm. And... My mother wasn't around for a lot of my life because she was chasing cash. And I just looked at capitalism as the reason my family didn't work out and the reason their marriage failed. Mm-hmm. I looked at it as an economic thing. Mm-hmm. They loved each other deeply, and all of their fighting came from money. And so I just thought, well, if we had money, there'd be no fighting. I'd have a family, and this is, this is what created this hustle in me, not because of materialistic things, but more for the opportunity to be able to, like, minimize the drama in my life. Right. And so— yeah, I was just chasing money for a long time. Interesting. Yeah. So that must have made it feel all the more stressful when even Stevens, I think, was was canceled, right? Because now where where does the next where does the next paycheck come Not from? Not canceled, but uh, the way Disney Channel, at least in those days, did it was it, you had three season run, and then that was it that because was it. everybody's salaries would go up, and Disney Channel wasn't trying to pay salaries like that. Man, kids probably hit puberty. <laughs> kids hit puberty, yeah. and, and they either, like, all of the shows, all of those Disney Channel original shows only went three seasons. Yeah. Well, so it seems, though, that it wouldn't have been very long before you get your first movie, which is Holes, mm. and the thing that struck me reading about that was... I didn't realize how much of a mentor John Voight really was for you. I mean, people more more than Holes probably remember that he was in the first Transformers with you, but you guys seem to have developed a real bond. What was what was it that he was able to share with you that that made that happen? I think there was just room for me in his life. You know, he was uh, he was just the sweetest like old dude I'd ever been around and not in like a fucking weird way in a straight up way in a way where he was sharing with me and talking to me like an adult and asking me about Dustin Hoffman and if I had seen this or that and he would give me like homework at night and he took to me like he didn't take with the other kids you know we were around each other all the time most of my his scenes were with me or Sigourney Sigourney wasn't really trying to talk to me because my dad was hitting on her all all the time so I was very uncomfortable but Voight was dressed up like a cowboy and my dad I don't know why just sort of trusted him Mm -hmm. and like would watch my dad was always obsessed with like chicken hawks Mm -hmm. so my dad would never leave me with uh men like Mm -hmm. grown men never Mm -hmm. except Voight Mm -hmm. I guess they had like a man shake and a talk at a certain point Mm -hmm. and um Voight put it to him like look you know your kid's got something special and let me talk to him and let me like put my arm around him and let Mm -hmm. him know what what this is like the craft of it all yeah and I didn't know anything about the craft at this point and I started getting close to him he started talking to me about 
his come up and what he learned and from who and who he looked up to and what his experiences on set were. And I had also seen him doing something with sunflower seeds. Like he just picked a prop that like, it was just such a smart choice. Yeah. And I remember being, even at that age, thinking like, that is a fucking great choice. Mm-hmm. Like what a great choice. Mm-hmm. And I remember him, I remember Andy Davis not being into the sunflower seeds. Mm-hmm. And I remember Voight hustling for it, mm-hmm. like fighting for mm-hmm. it. And it was the first time I ever saw an actor talk to a director that way, yeah. one, but also ape a set, mm-hmm. like take control of a set and then watch an actor's choice pay off. Yeah. Because I, I always had a big problem with what to do with my hands mm-hmm. and being able to just own a moment without moving much. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this allows him to be active and silent at the same time with these sunflower seeds. And right. it felt very ominous, but also like very human. Yeah, so I, I got obsessed with that choice. And this is how it actually started. I started like complimenting the choice. And for a Voight to hear a 14-year-old uh, be like really into an, yeah. a choice he made yeah. felt different for him. And the other kids weren't really like microscopic about what he was doing that way. Mm-hmm. And so this is why he like took to me. It yeah. wasn't because he was watching even Stevens. You yeah, know? It, yeah. was <laughs> it was because of what we were doing on set. He right. would do something on set and I'd be like, whoa, you know, how did you come to that? Right. You know, I was always forever asking questions Curious, yeah. and was, I had been going to AA meetings with my dad for so long that I kind of knew how to talk to old timers mm-hmm. and was into all the same music because mm-hmm. I came up on all the same music, uh, was into all the same comedians and like social commentary, but it's coming from a 14 year old. Right. So I was sort of prepared for Voight when I met him. Right. And I think he had like a vacancy in his life where he kind of wanted to be like, like a pop yeah, to somebody. Of course. And so, yeah, so I would, I would, uh, I'd spend a lot of time with him. And then when the m- movie ended, we still spend time and chop it up with him all the time and like. No, it's amazing. 15, 16, 17, he's still like on the phone with me, still talking to me. Yeah, he was just he was always a guy in my corner. Wow. And and it seems like that same year there was also the Battle of Shaker Heights, which people maybe knew about just as much because of Project Greenlight. Mm-hmm. And those guys, that's Affleck and Damon, were obviously a very different generation, but mm-hmm. also kind of took an interest in you. Uh Damon more than Affleck, yeah. but Affleck more publicly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Damon on the sly. <laughs> and and Affleck like at the premiere right. and on the sh- on the on the show, <laughs> and and did it help to see you know they're still a little bit older I think but you know more re- relatable to see what it's like to for somebody roughly your age to be in a position of authority on a on a project. Yeah, it gave me like freedom to like make choices, you know. So um, yeah, I, I guess I was I wasn't scared of directors at this point now because you're you're getting like you're getting cosigns from like the producers. Yeah which is them, and I, it started making me feel like I could have ownership and make choices that weren't necessarily in the script and yeah. sort of float a little bit more. So all of this is raising raising your profile in town uh, considerably to the point that you're in these blockbusters back-to-back, iRobot and Constantine, 2004, 2005. But in between them, I know there was a, the movie that you've sort of described as the one where you transitioned from being a kid actor to being an adult actor in The Greatest Game Ever Played in 2005. Why did you, that, that? Maybe that was just at the time it felt that way, but do you remember anything like that, that feeling that now you're in a different sort of uh, role on a set? I remember Bill Paxton. Yeah saying to me early on like you don't need to fill the space mm-hmm. it's not your job to be interesting mm-hmm. you don't need to do you know at this point I'm like off of Voight thinking like oh it's about choices and making right. interesting choices and this is the first time I had a guy in front of me who who was pushing like westerns mm-hmm. and like stand and deliver guys yeah. and like pushing Steve McQueen on me and, yeah and yeah telling me to like uh, not move so much mm-hmm. so I guess not a, a, a child to adult but just not trying to be interesting mm-hmm. you know more uh, like trying to be brave and honest mm-hmm. 
and I, listen, the movie is not, you know, I'm not going to review any of my stuff today because it just puts me in a bad spot. But I do remember enjoying my time with Paxton yeah. and enjoying his, like, holding the space for me to do yeah. nothing. Yeah. 2006 was Bobby, which which ended up getting a lot of, you know, attention because that was an unbelievable cat, just a huge cast of good people. But I think maybe people really discovered you as a grown-up adult uh, actor with Disturbia in 07, which if, if people haven't seen it, it's sort of like a very a play on Rear Window, I think would mm-hmm. be fair to say. Mm-hmm. Opened with $22 million opening weekend, stayed number one for three weeks. But I want to go back to you getting that part because I think that in a way it seems like that's another one of the, the big turning points because DJ Caruso is the director there, but wasn't he the one that first put you on Spielberg's radar? Yeah, I mean, the money put me on Spielberg's yeah, radar. Right, yeah, so right. uh, it wasn't like Spielberg was sitting at home watching Disturbia. <laughs> and though he was producing it, I right. don't think he thought it was going to be as successful as it was. Right. And then when it was as successful as it was, yeah, then, then we started having talks about the other big things he had. But no, I didn't. I never met Spielberg until the movie was released. Okay. So though he was a producer, it yeah. wasn't like he was coming to set. Right. I had never met him. Yeah. Movie was released and then made money, and then I got the call to come in and audition. For DreamWorks. Audition. So when you audition for, this was now talking about the possibility of Transformers, right? Yeah. And so when you get that invitation to audition, yeah. are you auditioning for Spielberg or does no. somebody first? No. Auditioning for Michael Bay's casting agent. Got it. Then from that uh, Michael Bay casting session, then I met Michael. Then I got sent to DreamWorks to go audition for the person who was running talent at DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. Then I got sent to go meet Spielberg. Even though you're, you're at that point still, you know what, like 17, 18, mm-hmm. did you have an appreciation of who Spielberg was? Was it was, yeah. sc- was it scary? Uh, terrifying, yeah. yeah. But also, uh, you know, my mother had been in my ear since a very young age. For a Jewish mother who's not like super Hollywood, doesn't right. really know film history, right. all a Jewish mother from New York knows about Hollywood yeah. is Spielberg. <laughs> That's the only thing that that person knows right, right. about Hollywood. Yeah, is mom, that, my mom's not far from that. Yeah. Right, is that there's a man named Steven Spielberg who sort of runs the shit over there, yeah. and he's Jewish. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so so I don't know what she thought was going to come of this, but since I was a very young man, like, you know, I'm not a young man, like a, before I had even had an agent, my mother yeah. was in bathtubs with me talking about, you're going to meet Spielberg one day. Wow. Which was strange because then when the time came for me to like try to be an actor, she wasn't super super supportive. Mm-hmm. She was scared. But she had always like been in my ear because I think she knew my father was a clown. I was headed that way anyway. So yeah, she'd always been in my ear about you're going to one day meet Steven Spielberg. And so, yeah, to me, it felt like Bichette. So it calmed me. Mm-hmm. It felt quite like, uh, mm-hmm. like written in the cards, yeah. like this was supposed to happen. And then I told him about that. And he was very charmed by the mm-hmm. fact that I knew words like Bichette <laughs> and Kismet and things like that, because it reminded him of his family. Right, right. But at this point, like I had already been co-signed by Michael Bay. Right. And had already made him a couple dollars, mm-hmm. and he was just in the middle of a transition where DreamWorks and Paramount were starting to do this merger. Yes. So because Disturbia was the first movie in that merger mm-hmm. and it was successful, I guess he earned points mm-hmm. because he walked in with a hit. Right. And so, yeah, both me and DJ got, like, got uh, another chance. And it just so happened that my other chance with him was like this big juggernaut of a film. So did he say anything to you when you had that initial meeting about... A, why he, you know, believed in you at that point, or B, what Transformers was, was going to be? I mean, was it, did you understand at the beginning? I, I, knew, I knew what Transformers was going to be walking in. I had yeah. already met with Bay. 
who I was a big fan of right. because Armageddon was like a seminal film for me. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I was already a fan of Bay. Bad Boys was a big movie for me also. Right. I love that movie yeah. deeply. And um, this is the first time I was in a room with somebody who was like making movies for a younger generation. Yeah. Andy Davis had made movies for a different generation. Yeah. Even Bill Paxton, like, you know, he mattered to me, mm-hmm. but not like Bay mattered right. to me. Right. Bay actually really mattered to me. Yeah. And me and him hit it off right away. And I still, you know, to this day, me and him have always hit it off. Mm-hmm. I've always been good with Mike. So I knew what it was going to be walking in. I knew who Bay was and how he films things. And so walking in with Steven, it was more like a human interaction, yeah. less than um, like, let's talk about this project. Right, right. It, it was more like, who are you as a person? What are you interested in? You know, come look at this cool thing over here. He's a little kid himself, yeah, you right. know, so, hey, have you have you played this game? Right. You know, talking about like Bioshock right, and right, stuff right. like that that he was way into. And he had like a, a Parasi shotgun collection. <laughs> I really like shotguns. Yeah. And we were like talking about shotguns right. and stuff like that. So I believe it's the case that it was just two days after Disturbia rap production that you went into Transformers. So not a lot of time in between. Yeah, Does zero that sound time. Zero time. Mm-hmm. That... I mean, obviously, you'd been meeting about Transformers, and and it was going to be a big opportunity. But at the same time, I had read a profile of you that was written just before Disturbia opened. So even before, I guess you at that point there, you you know you're doing Transformers already at that point, right? When when we, I I remember, I remember DJ specifically saying like giving me a send off about Transformers, yeah, on the set. But I feel like we were doing reshoots. There was a reshoot thing where. This is when I met Spielberg, actually. We did the first initial Disturbia shoot, and then Spielberg saw that cut. So, yeah, it has to be before the movie comes out. But, yeah, we, we, he, he had written reshoots, like, with this whole underground section that wasn't in the, in the first part of the movie. And so we spent, like, three days doing reshoots. Mm-hmm. And over the course of those three days, DJ caught wind of it mm-hmm. and was, like, giving me, uh, you know, was, like, bigging me up on my yeah. way out. Yeah. yeah. Well, the reason I ask about just, like, this is obviously a, a, a major, you're going to go down that path now. You do Transformers, a lot more people are going to know about you. You're going to be kind of going in for a while to, to stick with this business. But at the time that Disturbia was coming out, this profile was saying that you had in your backpack at that time an application to go to CalArts. You'd already been accepted to Yale, but had decided not to go yet. And there was a quote where you were saying that, you know, there you were very envious of people that could go off to college. Mm-hmm. Did it feel like you were giving that up to go forward with this with this route of now being in some very big movies? Yeah, but I also thought at the same time, like, uh, I'll accumulate recommendation letters on the way, and right. eventually I'll, I'll go. Right, right. Yeah, I always wanted to go to school. Transformer, Sam Witwicky, this whole thing ends up being, did you know going in it was going to be a multi, you know, yes. multi, how many did you know? Well, I knew that uh, Bay was. I knew it was going to be a hit. Yeah. I didn't know we were going to make multiple films. Yeah. I knew it was going to be a big film. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah, I mean, the budget of the first one I think was 150 million. This this one thing said you had not been in a anything of that scale. Well, that's not true. Right? iRobots is the same size. That, okay. Constantine okay. is the same size. I don't mean big that way. I mean the appetite was voracious amongst like my peer group. But what I guess what I'm saying is those ones you weren't at the center of. Yes. It wasn't sort of on your shoulders. Yes. You know that you got a $150 million movie that you're going to be a part of whether it does well or not, big part of it. Mm-hmm. Did that feel exciting or stressful? Oh, I w- wasn't even thinking in those terms no. at all. No. Plus, Voight was around, and, yeah, right. I didn't, you know, I had already had, like, Spielberg's blessing. I felt like this would be the most successful failure. There's no, no, no fail. There's no lose here. Right. Yeah. And CGI 
acting to that degree and doing stuff that I mean, again, though I guess iRobot and Constantine may have had some of that, but again, you're at the center of this one. Is that uh, did that feel daunting that it's just a different kind of acting than you you'd done up to that point? Even at this point, I don't think there was any acting going on. This was like personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's no acting uh, going on for like a, the huge front half of my career. This is all just like <laughs> my personality right. exhibited on a camera. Right. It almost feels like um I don't know, an extension of what was going on at the Tonight Show. Yeah, yeah. There was no, like, character. Right. You know, especially when you got two days between Disturby and Transformers, it's, it's the same person. Right. It's the ordinary kid in the extraordinary situation mm-hmm. over and over and over again. And that's actually where I was. Right. I was an ordinary kid for real in an extraordinary situation yeah. for real. Yeah, there was no, like, conjuring or t- trying to touch spirits or trying to n- nothing. There was no acting at all happening. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Up until I think you said Lawless, right? That was maybe the turning point. Lawless is when I saw something different. Yeah, it was yeah. the first time like I saw somebody doing it a different way. Let's. We will obviously be there. Uh, get to that in a moment. But first, just the success of that first Transformers film being so big, mm. it's got to have made your day to day life very different. Also, in the sense that a lot more people are now going to recognize you and probably approach you and just in terms of the the fame aspect of it how did you respond to that in the as it was happening at, for the first time i had a peer group that was older than me i was already insulated in mm-hmm. and yeah i was uh we were going out we were like you know 16 17 18 going out drinking riding around listening to music freestyling backyard parties like i had a peer group that didn't change yeah it was the same like 60 people and we would just like freestyle battle throughout van nuys it wasn't <laughs> nothing changed yeah. actually at all. So it, it wasn't like this is the world's closing in on no, me or anything. Yeah. It would be different if I had no friends and then all of a sudden I had a bunch of friends. It just wasn't that way. My life, right. I was already quite social uh, before Transformers ever hit. Right out of, I think, the first Transformers, you go into another thing with Spielberg, mm-hmm. little job playing Indiana Jones' son. Mm-hmm. Did that one in a way feel like even— That's when I felt the pressure. That's when you felt because I got the sense like— Harrison Ford was uh, being in there, you know, that, that, what was it that, that made you feel a little bit more pause about that one? The pressure of it. It felt like sacred. Yeah. It felt like you're walking into something sacred. Transformers, if it, win, lose, or draw, it was going to, I thought it would be a fun film. And I was a Transformers fan at heart. And I felt like, you know, the ceiling is really, you know, is sort of to go from the cartoon to making a film, hard to drop that ball. Yeah. When you're like, when you're making a fourth of a classic trilogy, it feels like the ceiling is really low. Mm-hmm. Like there's only so much win. There's really, how do you make this any better? Yeah, it just felt, I felt the pressure of the weight of what had already come before me, which felt like perfection. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know how we were going to update it or how I was going to be mm-hmm. uh, of any service to the project and um, had a tough time like wiggling my way into that pressure. And it, I mean, it made a lot of money, but you said at the time, quote, when that movie didn't fulfill the expectations, I was fucking broken, close quote. Where did you get the sense that it didn't fulfill? What, what was the disappointment of it? I you? keep my ear to the streets. Like, I, I, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not insulated into a, a group of people that, you know, I'm, especially at that time, like I'm on Ain't It Cool News every day. I'm reading like Quint. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm reading all of it. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not like sh- uh, shielded from all right. this stuff. I'm a film fan. Mm-hmm. So I'm re- reading all of it. And feeling all of it, this was the, regardless of what it is now, yeah. the overwhelming temperature amongst the film community that was vocal, at least on the internet and in the street, was that this film wasn't 
didn't fulfill expectations. Mm-hmm. And, and my thinking was somebody needs to speak to this directly, which was a mistake. When you, what do you mean somebody needs to speak to this directly? Uh, well, I was also, by the time I was asked about these questions, was hanging out with Oliver Stone and Josh Brolin, and we're in France. and Doing Wall Street. Yeah, doing Wall Street press. And these questions start popping up. And, you know, Oliver's in my ear like, you know, you get to decide who you want to be now. I was under the impression that, that the best way to deal with this was to be honest, and that honesty would actually raise expectations for the next film. Mm-hmm. That to actually speak to what I was reading on the Internet, because I knew that... Stephen would never speak to it, that George would never speak to it, that they would that they were a little bit above it, mm-hmm. right? They didn't need to actually speak on these things. But I felt like of the the generation that was around that set, you're not going to have like... Actually, John Hurt spoke about it yeah, a little bit. Yeah. God bless him. And God rest his soul. He spoke about it. Mm-hmm. And I had a very close connection to John Hurt. He was my best friend on that mm-hmm. set uh, and my closest ally mm-hmm. in that whole environment. Yeah. Him and Ray Winstone were the people I was around all the mm-hmm. time. And so Ray had spoken on it, John had spoken on it, and then I'm at France and I'm hanging out with these guys and they're in my ear like, hey, you get to pick who you want to be and full transparency is punk rock and these ideas about how to deal with this stuff. And I answered the question as I felt, which was not necessarily that, that the movie was bad, but that the movie could have been better. Yeah. And that if somebody doesn't acknowledge that we can update this thing, that we can make this better, then somehow the expectations of the next one coming down the pike would, would fall. Did you get blowback for being honest? Uh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. From the, from collaborators. From collaborators. Yeah. So how do you reconcile when, you know, maybe a movie is not what you or Quint or whoever want it to be, but it's still making a lot of money? I mean, in that same year of Indiana Jones was Eagle Eye. And this is unlike Transformers, unlike Indiana Jones, not based on a thing that's already well known to everyone. And it's it's still opens at number one, $29 million, and the only thing it had that anyone knew anything about was you. Spielberg was also producing it. Okay. Yeah, so if you see a trailer and it says executive produced by Steven Spielberg, you know, he comes in with all of his whole history. You could put his name on most anything and yeah. people are going to show up. Yeah. It is just built that way. It is that way now. But does it give, did it give you at that point, I think right as that, right after that year of Indiana Jones and Eagle Eye on the heels of Transformers, this is all Steven. All, all the success, Steven. all the success of all of those films is yeah. attributed specific, directly to Steven Spielberg. Well, but so why is BAFTA giving you the Rising Star Award that right because, after that? Because the BAFTA awards, at least the one that I got, yeah. is called the Orange Rising Star Award, yeah. which they give to whoever's popping. It's like a gossip award. So whoever's in the papers the most, they give them the award. It has not fuck all to do with who yeah, they really talent. think is like the next person or talent or any of that. Yeah. It has to do with who's grossed the most money, mm-hmm. who's in the papers all the time, mm-hmm. whose name is on, you know, it has, you know, it has nothing to do with um, me. So... After that stuff, after Wall Street, it seems like you sort of hit the reset button where there were this bunch of character-driven indie films starting maybe with Lawless and then for years after that where you'd done an interview with Interview Magazine where, where they, the guy doing it basically said, it seems like all these characters are suffering and looking for something. And you were saying basically that's where you were yourself. Mm-hmm. Another quote that you had, which I thought was really interesting, was it was sort of saying that this was a concerted decision not to do the studio movies going forward. You said, quote, I'm done. There's no room for being a visionary in the studio system, close quote. So what what were you imagining the best path forward should would be at that point? Also, not taken out of context, I'm not speaking about myself being a visionary. I'm speaking about yeah, yeah. 
directors being visionaries because yeah. I do not believe I'm a visionary. Haven't then, don't know now. That's sure. not my in sure, my wheelhouse. Sure, sure. But uh, yeah, I, I, and, I, and I don't really know how to answer this uh, diplomatically. Well, I guess though, what I mean is, you knew that you were now looking to do a different kind of thing. Yeah. So what? What was that modeled after? Were there- Full disclosure also, yeah. I mean, at a certain point, it wasn't like people were looking for me to be in studio film anymore. Yes, in order to be in studio film, you need to hit the mark and say the lines, but you also got to be able to play the game, which is a whole the selling of it. And I wasn't really ever good at selling a movie. Do you think that, that even after those early big hits, that there was that sense already in the, among... I it guess it was never directors that would stop me from getting in jobs or even my discretion about choosing roles. Yeah. It was marketing departments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Marketing departments would go, oh, well, this dude, if this movie isn't up to his standards, is going to shit talk our movie in the press, and we actually can't put any confidence in hiring him for this film, which is a completely logical assessment <laughs> of who I was at the time and how I was moving. Right. Yeah. I do want to ask about a few other roles that I think you've confirmed at the time you were I don't think this was them vetoing you. It was you vetoing them. And I just wonder if you remember what the thought process was. The, the, the ones that have been reported were the leading parts in The Social Network, 127 Hours, and then the part that Renner ended up playing in the Bourne films. Was it because they were of a certain scale or something that you no longer wanted to yeah, do? Yes, so clear this stuff up. Um, yeah. Social Network was never offered to me. It was an offer to go meet an audition. And I was already doing another job at the time, so I had no room to, like, prepare the audition right. and didn't want to show up and meet Fincher, who I hold very highly, yeah, yeah. unprepared. Right. So it wasn't like, oh, they offered it, and I said, no, that's not real. Got it. it was the offer to go and audition for Fincher that I turned down because I felt like I didn't have time to prepare. Right. The other one that you mentioned was 127 uh, hours. 127 hours. I, I sat and we met. They offered it to me, but I had just flipped a truck on my hand yeah. and didn't – and that half that role is – with his right arm in a rock and his left arm doing a lot of the action. Yeah. And I couldn't I couldn't do what was required of the script. So it wasn't turning it down. It was we had a very real talk about yeah. what's real and what's not. And at the time I was in physical therapy, yeah. you know, going three times a week and wasn't prepared to do everything that was asked of me in that script. Born Identity, I did turn down. Yeah. You were a part of the reason why Lawless got made, this John Hill coat and playing bootlegger. And you've also said that Working with Tom Hardy was a, it changed the way you worked. I guess he's a pretty method guy. So maybe that's the wrong. Yeah, I don't think he's method, but he's the most intense person I've ever been around up to that point. So what did you do differently after working with him? Ownership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And coming out of that project, I guess the next movie was, I don't, you never know which order was shot in, but it seems like the next one released was Charlie Countryman. And speaking about intensity and like really throwing yourself into a part. I mean, that would be an example of that, right? Mm-hmm. The way it's been reported was that you actually took acid mm-hmm. to do the part. Mm-hmm. Did that, is that a positive? Is that helpful? So totally not helpful, but deeply generative. Generative, yeah. Yeah. It's just funny because yesterday I was interviewing somebody and they had to play drunk in a yeah. film yeah. and they said they had once yeah. done it and they felt that it was actually shook their confidence playing drunk because. Yeah. You know, they drunk is one thing. Yeah. Like if if the if the if Charlie had just said I need to be drunk, I had yeah. just come out of Lawless. We weren't drunk the whole time. Yeah. We had we had we had played with it, dabbled with moonshine, yeah. saw what the differences in in the drunk was. Yeah. The difference here was I was terrified of acid, mm-hmm. terrified, had never tried acid, mm-hmm. come from a, f- a family of addicts mm-hmm. generationally, yeah. and didn't want to 
try acid ever. Didn't want to prepare that part. And then I'm three days out, and I asked Evan to go get it for me. She had dated Marilyn Manson, mm-hmm. and so she kind of knew where to get shit like this in Romania <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and wound up getting it for me. But up until three days out, I wasn't planning on doing this. I was sending videos to Frederick over and over yeah. and sending videos to Evan, mm-hmm. who knew about the acid trip, who mm-hmm. knew what it looked like, mm-hmm. and was dead honest in her assessment of the fact that we had never gotten there in the videos that I was sending. So three days out, you know, I threw it to Evan like, well, fuck it. I'm just, I can't, I'm not, I'm not prepared to do this as an actor. Mm -hmm. And so, and it has to be this way Mm -hmm. and it has to be real or the rest of this movie is garbage. Mm -hmm. And so go get me acid. You think though, I mean, so Lawless, you're saying it was, it was, Seems harmlessly enough trying to figure out, you know, the alcohol versus moonshine. Well, that's the other thing. Hardy doesn't drink. Yeah. Yeah. Hardy is doing shit in front of me, not drinking at all. Yeah. Me and Jason are drinking moonshine every night. Yeah. Yeah. And Hardy is stealing scenes all around us. You know, these are lessons that you learn along the way. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess what's just striking when you step back and kind of look at it from above, you know what I mean? Like just at the big picture here, you were getting increasingly... And probably for all the right reasons, like just diving into these parts. So with that was that with Lawless. Then we talked about Charlie Countryman. Then Nymphomaniac with a guy who is notoriously intense and sort of edgy and dangerous or whatever. I mean, I've seen all those adjectives used for Lars von Trier. I would add teddy bear, sensitive, yeah, sweet, yeah, yeah. honest, warm. So, but do you feel like you were gravitating towards things that were going to be similar? Like also push the edge in a way for yourself. I think I was also trying to earn my father. I was trying to shake off Disney. I was trying to shake off Blockbuster. And I was trying to work with people who fucked with me. Yeah. Really, I was trying to work with people who would celebrate what I had to offer and my sensibilities. And it just so happened that those people veered towards this area. Yeah. The one that I know you've said at one point that you you said, I think it's the best work I've ever done was and maybe that's changed since honey i mean honey boy is terrific so maybe it was even more but at the time was was fury where it sounds like you dove more into that part than anything up to that point and i had the time i had just been fired from a play that i had prepared for a year Mm -hmm. i was in a room with al pacino for a year and then alec baldwin came on three months out and then me and him didn't hit it off and then i got fired and then I had like a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I got the call from David and me and Brad exchanged a letter and I had a year, well, eight months to prepare for Fury. So I went to become a chaplain and join the military. So irregardless of what wound up on screen, as an actor, that's the most prepared I ever felt. So being that prepared, yeah, does that in- increase your level of confidence when you actually go to work or is it just something to have in the, it yeah, does having two days between jobs yeah, yeah. versus having eight nine months right to prepare something is a different sport did you ever feel though with any of this stuff i mean it's incredible what you were doing here you basically in the course of preparing for fury it sounds like you found god yourself in a way yeah. right yeah but you also are doing things again that were and this is not in any way a critical thing, but it's it's just striking. Just that, undiplomatic, not an accountant. Well, what I what I mean is like you've got you have two little scars on your face that happen at that same time, right? Yeah, which has less to do with like me and my character and more to do with like galvanizing a set. But the sentiment being, I'm gonna be this committed. Nah, that no? wasn't the sentiment. The sentiment was we walked into a makeup trailer. Yeah. I looked at Brad, he looked very sad. Mm-hmm. He felt like we were all walking into a disaster. 
We're looking around, you know, Pena's on his phone playing uh, Tetris. Bernthal is deeply, deeply insecure. We went to like a three-month, uh, a, a three-week boot camp, and you're standing around a bunch of tankers who've given their life to this and like had gone to World War II since Africa, Africa into Germany, you know, Africa into Italy into Germany. You got these people on set, and it felt like, like we needed to taste it further and we needed to push it further. And then it became like, quite honestly, me and Berndtal cheerleading behavior that would bleed into the set, mm -hmm. would bleed into the rest of the cast and would inform the way we were moving. So it started with me and Berndtal not wanting to get out of the tank at night mm -hmm. and wanting to stay there, both because our shared insecurity mm -hmm. and because we felt like we needed to earn our spot from the tankers who were around us. Mm -hmm. So that you'd have tankers around us telling us about the experiences that they had and saying things like, you really don't know what it's like to be in a tank until you're in there for about a month. And we had, didn't have a tank to do that until we got the tank. Mm -hmm. And then once we got the tank, none of us wanted to leave the tank. Mm -hmm. So it started with me and Berndtal just staying in the tank all the time. And then things started happening like in prep where it just started feeling like Berndtal would, would say shit like, you fucking cutie, you know, you're so fucking cute. And then this started leading to like trying to change my face up and like pulling teeth out and, uh, you know, knife to face. And this stuff all came out of like talking like me and him talking, yeah. and he did the same thing to Berndtal, you know, uh, less reported, but yeah. started messing around also. This stuff started, you started feeling it on Logan Lerman, mm -hmm. who we were actually doing this for, Yeah. right? So we were trying to make that a genuine thing. Is there a point, though, beyond which an actor shouldn't go to get yes, it? If, if ever it gets in the way of shooting or yeah. makes somebody else feel uncomfortable in a way that's not productive or generative yeah. or gets in the way of somebody else's process or becomes like an issue on set that is makes things not as fun to be around or unlivable that way, mm -hmm. then yeah, that shit's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But if it's generative, yeah. if it's productive, if it makes it easier to get through scenes, if it makes it easier to find the truth, if it makes people focus in a way that's hyper-focused, if, if it makes acting like a car crash where people start feeling like they're waiting for magical things to happen, if it starts creating an environment quite like church where it feels sacred, then all those things should be done. Almost at the present, I just want to note, because I think it's not noted enough, that these last three, four years, it's incredible. You know, everybody's now kind of talking about Honey Boy, but the people who saw American Honey certainly thought very highly of your work, and that may be more it should have. It was it would have been nice, but I end up with a Spirit Award nomination for that. John McEnroe, I wondered, I don't think I've ever really seen or heard heard this directly addressed, but I mean, there's a guy who clearly had some anger issues of his own, right? Was it cathartic to sort of do that through somebody else? I mean, what was the appeal of another very good performance, but just to play that part? It was interesting that... I just understood where he was coming from. Yeah. He was trying to shake something off also. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the second. Then we get to this crazy 2019, which I know was in the works since 2017, but of both Peanut Butter Falcon and Honey Boy. And Even so, previous to that, Man yeah. Down felt big for me. Man Down was me with Gary Oldman in a room for three days doing scenes. And he was a hero. Irregardless, yeah, major pound for pound, probably best walking around. Irregardless of the product that that emanated from that process, mm -hmm. the process yeah. of being able to like, it felt like um, be in the room with Gary, and run scenes like that. Irregardless of what the film, the what what people think of the movie, 
I do point at that as a huge turn for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so everything I feel like that's happening now actually came from that, at least the way that I hold myself on a set. Interesting. Because do you think he today handles himself differently as an actor than when he was bringing through? Yeah, definitely. And so this is what I mean. You're you're having talks with this guy about his behavior on State of Grace Mm -hmm. versus how he's working now. Mm -hmm. And you can actually see the difference and also see the control he has over his instrument. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these these stories that I've been hearing my whole life from John Hurt and the like of who Gary Oldman was, and then you get in a room with him for three days and you experience what that is, it's even calmer than a hearty. Right. Yeah. Right. And more effective and more supportive. Interesting. Yeah. This is the idea of dance partner. Right. Uh, until Gary, I was really like a solo artist, mm-hmm. like just trying to get my shit off and trying to get my part right. And like even having brotherly relations with Brad or with with Bernthal, really like when 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 we would start filming, it, we, it was every man for himself. Getting in the room with Gary it started feeling quite different. And I guess maybe you took that to even new and greater heights with Peanut Butter Falcon because that's got – have you ever worked more closely with another actor than you did with Zach? No. What convinced you to sign on to that project in the first place? I felt like, first off, the first letter I got was from Ben Foster, which was, you know, I'd had a history with Ben, like I told you. And then I had written him a letter to replace me on Orphans. Mm -hmm. Uh, He came in like three weeks and Mm -hmm. knocked it out the park Mm -hmm. and like picked up all the blocking and mannerisms. And we walked each other through that. And like uh, one hand washes the other. And we've always been in each other's orbit, deep respect for each other, Mm -hmm. same kind of insecurities, same kind of investment. Both of us go to set to fly. Both of us go to set to light fires to take death out of your pocket and slam it against the wall. Mm -hmm. We both treat this thing the same. So I've always been very close with Ben. Mm -hmm. And Ben wrote me a letter basically saying, this is a favor for me and for yourself. This will change you. You need to meet this person. You need to see this footage. And uh, you need to make this movie. The person being Zach? Zach. Who, if people haven't seen this yet, is a young actor who has Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. and, And I guess as a result... Maybe of, of that, it seems like there was, apparently was also quite a bit of improv on the set, which in a way seemed to excite you, right? That you would, it was alive more than maybe sometimes it is. Yeah, and mandated. There's no other way to get through these scenes. Right. So it's not like a, an optional thing. It's the only route. The stories of Peanut Butter Falcon and Honey Boy, I guess, are kind of intertwined in the sense that it was while you were working on Peanut Butter Falcon in Georgia that the series of events started that led to you writing Honey Boy. Yes. To whatever extent you want to get into it, can you just connect the dots? Yeah, so me and Zach are living in the same hotel room for the whole of the shoot, and Zach would fall asleep, and I'd wander off into the woods, basically, and go get drunk and watch sports and be like a grown-up and and, uh, get away from watching wrestling. One of these nights, I had been out way too late, put him to bed, walked off, wandered off into Savannah, Georgia, Asked the guy for a cigarette. Wrong guy to ask for a cigarette. He was not trying to have him give me give me a cigarette. This became like a, a wrestling match of sorts, not in a physical sense, yeah. you know, words. And uh, then he took a badge out, told me he was a cop, and told me he was going to arrest me. So then I ran back to my hotel and um, spiraled. I had also been coming out of like this anti, this um, not anti, but quite a politically charged uh, performance piece, and felt like even before this moment was getting eyed. Which was that one? I know uh, you've done a lot. He of... will not divide us. Yes. 
And so uh, was getting eyed in Savannah, like just getting catcalled in the middle of the street, you know? Uh, you fucking liberal, this, that, this, that. Mm-hmm. So this stuff was running through my mind. Mm-hmm. was still, like, hyped up on, on that and thinking that I was getting targeted, mm-hmm. but also drunk out of my mind and not rational at all. Mm-hmm. And so this fueled into a discussion about what I viewed as one, like a legitimate conversation about police officers in a system that doesn't uplift its own community. And in my head, it felt like being a Jewish Gestapo. And I'm in the middle of a conversation with a black police officer about the positive and negatives of being a black police officer, which is a ridiculous conversation to have. But at the time, this is what was fueling this kind of vitriol. This spiraled into TMZ clipping it up and ripping things out of context and painting me as a certain kind of person, which fueled a kind of shame, deep shame. And um, the judge let me finish the movie. But, you know, it's a primarily black crew in Savannah, Georgia, and I've come out of jail and can't look anybody in the eyes because the only context anybody was given on set was what TMZ had reported, Mm -hmm. which was basically this one-liner that Shia tells black police officer he's going to hell for being black and cutting out six hours of conversation. And so I'm feeling like people on set think I'm a racist, believe I'm a racist, and I'm feeling all of that and don't want to be alive, basically. And I'm on this set can't look at anybody in the eyes and the only person who I feel like is giving me any kind of connection non-judgmentally is coming from Zach and they put me on a boat and we start filming again and then when the film ended I got sent to court-ordered rehab in Connecticut can I just interrupt for one second just before we move beyond the the Zach part of it all you have said that the conversation that you had when you went back to work with Zach that next day quote probably changed the course of my life close quote why was that? What did he have to say? Well, that was when I got sober. Uh, that day? Yeah. Yeah. My last drink was this arrest. He basically looked me in the eye and said, don't—I'm going to paraphrase, but don't fuck this up for me. This is my only chance. And, had, and I had made promises to him and talked to his parents, and if you can empathize with that position where you're looking at somebody you deeply love and have made promises to and know that he's done everything right and that— you have a disease that is going to fuck up everything and that so much is riding on this and I felt all of that. And Zach, it didn't come heavy-handed from him. He basically, within a millisecond, was already in this redemptive kind of, you know, drop-the-rock kind of attitude, which is the beauty of Zach. Uh, I mean, I think you had said you with fury you would become religious. Then he, he, he brought up. God? Yeah, my, but my religiosity was very Christian mm-hmm. and almost removed, mm-hmm. almost like a mask. Like I knew how to pray the way it's described, mm-hmm. the way it's prescribed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my God was prescriptive. My God wasn't personal at this point. I didn't have a face. I had a text. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a personal connection. I had a healthy knowledge, mm-hmm. theological knowledge, but no relationship. And, it this, and it's also because I hadn't been in a foxhole for real. Yeah, and me on this boat with Zach is me at a fo- in a foxhole. This is my bottom. And so you can only really get a connection like that if you're in a foxhole, I think. Maybe other people come to it the way that they do, but uh, I needed to desperately, it needed to be surrender. And my surrender came on that boat with Zach, talking to him about his God. And for a long time, was praying to his God would pray to, Zach gave me his address at a certain point, I typed it into my GPS, and I knew that I didn't believe in God. I knew about God, but didn't believe in it. 
and would pray to the, I needed a Polaroid picture. I needed this, this um, I need a poly, Polaroid picture of this omnipresent thing. So I'm looking for something that I'm never going to get. And so the best I could muster at the time was to look at MapQuest or uh, Google Maps mm -hmm. of Zach's address of his house in Florida. And I would pray to the GPS coordinates above Zach's house because I knew that Zach believed in God for real. And, and so, believed in you. And believed in me. Yeah, I, and so I would pray to his God. And that's kind of what got me through a lot. The and certainly the rest of that shoot, at which point is where I interrupted you. You were now, having finished the film, you go to this court-ordered rehab. Yes. And it ended up being a, a very positive thing, right? It was going to be a positive thing, irregardless of yeah. if Honey Boy came out or not. Yeah. But uh, it was the first time I was told I had PTSD, mm -hmm. uh, which is a different thing than what I thought my— I just thought I was an alcoholic, just like a true blue drunk, and that I needed to deal with that. And I knew it was an issue, but didn't know there was this uh, this this extra, you know, a whole other thing that was hindering my ability to have any peace in my life and my ability to deal with people. Is there a way to conclude what initiated the PTSD? Yeah, it was my uh, childhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which then... Someone there says maybe the way to work through this is to write it down? Not maybe. The, definitely the way yeah. to get through this is to write it down and do exposure work and other things, mm -hmm. but more science-based like cognitive therapy, dealing with neural pathways and resetting them and things like that. But yeah, the, the stuff that's in Honey Boy comes out of these exposure therapy sessions, which are something like gestalt therapy, mm -hmm. which uh, have to do with two people in a room acting scenes out from the past and really one person acting out scenes for your therapist and then talking about them after, finding where the pain uh, lies and coming in the next day and talking about them again and again and again until the pain wears off. And I had an open-ended session there. Basically, my agreement with the judge was I either face seven years for terrorizing a police officer or I go to this Connecticut rehab facility, which is open-ended, and they tell you when you can leave. And so... I had no like light at the end of the tunnel. It wasn't like that. I walked in, they said, hey, for six weeks from now, you can go uh, back to your life. It wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. It was, you're here till, till we get through this. And so I resigned to the fact that I would be there for a long time, uh, considering I was facing like a felony charge. So I thought, okay, well, uh, I, I'm here for a while and got quite comfortable with the process, got quite invested in the process. And so maybe I would say like maybe three, three and a half weeks into this process, I started having a transcript of this dialogue I was having with myself in exposure therapy and being a, a capitalist, being a, a, an artist, being a, an actor desperate to not give my craft away. Started looking at it from a different angle. Wasn't quite sure I could ever do it, but figured, well, I'm here, you know, um, I'm not getting sent scripts. This could be like a route towards creativity again. This could be a route towards like pulling death out of my pocket and slamming it against the wall. Didn't think I would be an actor, but thought, okay, well, maybe I could like write this thing and see what this leads to. Why and when you wrote it, though, because I guess we have to introduce the other key character here, which is somebody you'd met six years before that. Why when you've, you've poured your, you're at a kind of a low point, you've poured your most intimate experiences and memories into this written document, why is the person who you sent it to a filmmaker named Alma Harrell? Okay, well, Alma Harrell is one, like, the tastiest person I've ever met in my life, uh, like a really good referee for my ideas and have been sending, consistently sending every auxiliary art thing that I've ever done to her, including everything I've ever tried to direct or make or performance art or anything. I've always sent it to her to sort of get her cosign. 
she was also not connected to my film life at all. This is always like auxiliary creative. So, and I knew we had been talking for a while about finding a narrative to make together, but didn't really think much of it or put much weight into the idea that we would be making a movie together because I thought, well, to make a movie, you need money and there's no way you can raise money on, on my name. And, you know, I had all this other... Uh, self-defeating thoughts going on in my head. Plus, she had not yet directed a narrative film feature. Yet, yeah. yeah. So the reason I was sending it to Alma was because I wanted her to critique my writing. Also because Alma has been, I'm not going to uh, speak on Alma's behalf here, but Alma has similar sensibilities and has gone through shared trauma mm-hmm. and has gone through similar processes and is part of programs that, are, that look kind of like the program I'm in. 12-step. Yep. So, and had time like stacked up. And so she was like some kind of sponsor figure on the internet for me. Well, a person who one, I could be honest and forthright with, but also somebody who could give me hope and uh, reality check me and had like a strong Emmanuel Kant in her with a soft lob, right? So she could be very critical, but also really warm. And you'd work together before in the sense of you'd seen her documentary, Bombay Beach, mm. you'd done some music related projects with her and that Sigur Ross video yeah. was like a, I had never experienced a set like that which felt like some kind of gestalt therapy it felt like exposure therapy where we were talking about actual trauma in the middle of doing this shoot and so that shoot turned into something holy you know I got naked in that shoot mm-hmm. one because Dina she asked Dina to get naked but also because I had trauma related to my nudity mm-hmm which, you know, I would point at Nymphomaniac and the choice there for the same reasons, where I had been, and it's in Honey Boy, where I had been, like, verbally attacked by my father and was trying to heal myself on that set and felt like there was healing that went on on that set in a very specific category of my life and felt like Alma's way felt like a healthy way. It felt like a way that could tunnel my way of molding the clay and her way of molding the clay into shaping a better person on the other side of the creative part. And I think you had also executive produced something with her where she did that same kind of approach, love, true. She had gone through a heavy breakup in her life and was trying to excise demons in her life Mm -hmm. creatively and went and made a documentary about matters of the heart Mm -hmm. and what love means and nobody would finance it because it was too esoteric a pitch Mm -hmm. and didn't have like a strong narrative theme and people looking at it like, wait a minute, this is going to be an open-ended shoot. But I I, I knew what Alma was about Mm -hmm. and knew what she was after and also knew where she was at. I knew Alma needed to go to set. Mm -hmm. I knew Alma was in a low point and she needed to go create something for her survival, irregardless of what the product was going to be. I knew that at that point, my friend needed a exit route from pain right and her exit route was a film and it's and same here so when i reached out to her it was sort of the same request it wasn't like hey give me money but it was like i need an exit route Mm -hmm. i'm in pain and i need an exit route and you know that people that are built like you and me only know how to fish one way yeah so i sent her this transcript and she read it and said this is a narrative Mm -hmm. feature and you need to finish everything that you're doing there. And when they let you out, we need to talk about building this into something in a very pragmatic way, building this into a narrative feature in full. But it's interesting because, like I said earlier, I thought one of the amazing things was that you had the empathy to step into the shoes of your dad and play him in the finished film, which you know, I, another person in another article put it better than I could. They were saying, quote, imagine trying to understand a person who caused you so much pain that you develop PTSD, 
by playing them with warmth, humor, and depth on screen, close quote, which I think is exactly, it's an amazing thing that you did. What's interesting, though, is that she wasn't going to do that. You, you weren't planning to do that at first, right. and she wasn't going to do it unless you did. Well, Alma is quite brilliant, and Alma knew that the only way through the pain was to actually do it this way, mm-hmm. that I wasn't going to empathize with my father as a writer, that I was only going to empathize with my father as, a, as an actor. Mm-hmm. And it's real. If I had just written it and sent it off, it would still, there would still be a, a shady part in my heart that I hadn't really fully excavated. Only in playing my father did I empathize with him. It wasn't empathetic on the page. Mm-hmm. And you had to get him to... Had go to along with this. On it. Yeah. yeah, so I had to go. I hadn't talked to my father in seven years at that point. Wow. And then went to Costa Rica and read him the script and didn't tell him I was going to play him. Told him somebody else was going to play him, <laughs> which was uh, like a feather in his cap. Right. Person he really looked up to, and um, and and bluffed my way into getting him to sign this paperwork. And then after he signed the paperwork, I put it to him like I'm playing you, and he looked at me in a different way because he didn't believe that I could pull it off. One, but also. Um, now felt like like I was looking at him differently. Has he seen the film? Yes, yes. Has he shared with you his reactions? He knows that I see him. Yeah, he knows that I really see him from the inside. Do you think you guys will have a different relationship going forward because of that? Most definitely. And I want to just end with this, the way this, this has all gone down since you've shared it with the world. Forget about just relatives. But with, I guess, the first thing was Sundance. You guys get in. You go there, and it was one of the hits of the whole film festival. People went nuts for it. They've still been going nuts as it's gone to the film festival circuits. I know that when I came out, I didn't get to go to Sundance, but as I told you yesterday, when I saw the movie in Toronto finally at that film festival, I came out, and I swear to God, I felt like I wish there was a way I could— I felt guilty because I said, I wish I could apologize to this guy for any of the preconceptions I had. You know, we all make them, I think, about— about people who we don't really know, but then to see what, if, even if only 5%, and I'm certainly not suggesting this is the case, but even if only 5% of what's in the film was true, I feel like I was way, way in the wrong. And so I know a lot of people come out of this movie feeling that, wanting to give you a hug, all of that. What has been the experience for you to have people see this movie, which is creatively an amazing thing, but also sharing a part of you that you I don't think ever really talked about. I know there had been like at one point, I, and this was interesting, that there had been a, a tr- years ago the possibility of doing like a, a treatment, something rent-a-dad. Yeah. What was that? So this is like, um, I yeah, I met, uh, I met a guy named Wick Godfrey who's now running Paramount, mm-hmm. and I met him on iRobot. Mm-hmm. And... I was there for eight months uh-huh. doing nothing, uh-huh. but was hanging out with Jaden all the time and reading books and playing book, you know, <laughs> just messing around. Yeah. And while I was there, I had, my father was there. Uh-huh. It was the last set my dad was on, uh-huh. really, the last, like, full set. And he saw me and my dad's banter, and I had been writing, like, uh, like uh, a treatment called Rent a Dad, which was Honey Boy. Mm-hmm. But without like the with a different whole different angle, it was yeah. like a sitcom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, and I had pitched it to Wick. Yeah. And he, you know, was just like he was just charming about it, but it was not real. Not yet. Yeah. No. But um, yeah, that's true. So, flash forward all these years to now, where I I feel like it's got to feel like you're you're putting yourself in. T- it is like n- being naked in a way. Everything's out there, creatively, personally, whatever. 
how does it feel to be getting the response that it's getting? I'm happy for Alma. You know, I'm happy that um, my father feels like uh, he's seen. I think all my dad ever wanted was nobody to be upset with him. And I think he thought I was just really upset with him. And now he feels like he's been a, he's given me some kind of like a legacy or um, like left me something when he goes kind of thing. Uh So he's calmed. I've calmed. I think context is important. I don't think you're wrong for thinking I was a dick. I think, you know, context is really important. And I think what Honey Boy does is it contextualizes who I was publicly and kind of plays on it. You know, it plays on that. And uh, I'm grateful it's effective, and I'm really happy for Alma. And I'm happy for Noah. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.